Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Caleb Zacharin, assistant editor of the New Books Network. Today, I'm speaking with Olivier Burton, associate professor of U.S. history and civilization at the University of Amiens, France. We're discussing a nation of veterans, war, citizenship, and the welfare state in modern America. This book examines how the United States, a country often noted for possessing a weak welfare state in comparison to other OECD countries, ended up with the world's most expansive system of veterans' benefits. The history of veteran political influence is often neglected in our modern day. Even a brief glance at the U.S. 20th century proves how consequential veterans' groups were in delivering goods to former fighters. Like many Americans, I'm an indirect beneficiary of this system. My grandfather fought in World War II and was able to attend college for free at the Pratt Institute in New York City. For a long time now, I've been fascinated by the role that veterans play in civilian life, and I'm excited today to discuss a nation of veterans. Olivier, thank you for joining me today on the New Books Network. Thanks, Caleb. Thanks for giving me the chance to uh, discuss my research. Of course, you know, as I said in the intro, uh, this is something that's that's really fascinated me for for such a long time. Ever since I was a little kid, hearing stories uh, about about my my grandfather. Before jumping into into all that, I was just wondering if you could tell us a little bit about yourself and your background. Yeah, so in terms of um, of personal background, I'm, I'm a French citizen. Obviously, um, I was I did my undergraduate in Paris at the University of Sciences Po. Um, then I went abroad to the U.S. to do my PhD in history um, at Princeton. Then I came back to Europe. Um, and postdoc at uh, Ludwig Maximilian University in Munich. Um, and I ended up after um, two and a half years there at the University of Amiens, uh, where I've been since um, September of 2022. In terms of what I'm interested in as a scholar, um, I'd say I'm a uh, political historian of the modern United States, um, which is to say that I'm interested in politics really as broadly defined as possible, um, and primar- primarily in uh, the relationship between state um, and society. This was actually the first thing that I um, worked on as a historian during my master's thesis uh, in 2010, 2011. I wrote uh, what was the um, biography of a conservative businesswoman named uh, Vivian Kellams, who figure uh, in the fight against taxes, uh, an early figure in the feminist movement as well, uh, and the conservative movement more largely. So this is the first thing that I really uh, wrote about as a historian. And then when I came to Princeton for my PhD, I expanded uh, those interests to look at uh, the relationship between war and society which um, led me to this project that we are um, talking about here. And as far as this particular book is concerned, you know, was there a particular moment in time where you thought, oh, this is the topic that I should write about, or did it come about a bit more organically? Yeah, so I mean, there's two um, two ways of, of answering that question. The first one is, um, honestly, it was uh, a very random process um, of, like I said, I came to the PhD with a very different idea of what I wanted to do for my dissertation. Um, I thought initially that I was going to expand on the biography of uh, Vivian Kellams that I had done for my uh, master's. Um, But I quickly realized that um, writing biography, especially of um, someone who was not essentially a major figure in national politics, um, was not necessarily the best idea. Um, So I went looking around around the second or third year of my PhD, and I read um, Kim Phillips' fine, excellent um, state-of-the-field essay on uh, conservatism, 
which I think was published in 2011 in the Journal of American History. And I read um, there, she said in, in passing in the essay that um, the relationship of the conservative movement with um, veterans and in particular with the American Legion had not really been um, studied before and extensively. So I realized this was something that was uh, worth um, spending time on, um, something that I was interested in as well. Um, so I did a seminar paper on it. Um, I went to the archives of the American Legion in Indianapolis, spent some time there and realized that there was um, not just material, um, but also interest in the topic. So I decided to go ahead. Um, so this was the, this is the first uh, way to answer your question. The other way is also to say that um, as a foreigner who has been living in the U.S. at the time, who had been living in the U.S. for quite some time, I had always been um, interested in the place of veterans and the military in U.S. culture. Um, you know, I, I had been to um, to different sort of uh, food, uh, baseball games, and I always been interested in how there was always a display of flags um, at the beginning of those games. I was also interested in how um, Americans tended to always say thank you for this to every veteran that they met, um, and just the general respect with which um, veterans tended to be treated in public discourse, um, which was different from um, the place of veterans in, I think, European culture more generally, but also French culture more specifically where I came from. Um, it's not to say that um, French veterans are either marked in any way, but simply that they occupy much less uh, place in the public discourse, um, if not not at all, to be honest. Um, and so I was curious the difference in the U.S. Um, and so when I realized it was a topic that was worth doing, I also realized that this would be a way to kind of investigate more in depth um, this question that I had always been interested in. So, so in a way, it was also a bit predetermined, I guess. Yeah, no, the the, the it's fascinating. Like even saying the thank you for like I. You know, it's not something that I even uh, am aware of. I would have just assumed it was normal everywhere. <laughs> no, it's not. People to, to thank to thank veterans. Uh, you know, uh, moving into the actual contents of the book, and then what we can, you know, uh, by the end, once we get some of the context for listeners, we can talk more about just the general place of veterans uh, mm -hmm. in the world today. Uh, but you know, you begin this book by talking about the interwar period between World War One and, and World War Two, and I was wondering if you just describe what that was like for that period was like. You know, the main players, the main organizations, groups uh, mm -hmm. between World War One and World War Two. Yeah, so the book starts uh, with World War One, um, and the interwar period in general was was a difficult period for for veterans um, for many reasons. Um, the economic downturn that um, followed World War One in 1918, 1919. Um, also, just the chaos, the general chaos of the uh, demobilization period. Um, the war actually ended sooner um, than U.S. and most Allied planners had expected, and so preparations were really not in place for um, approximately 4.7 million um, veterans to come home, um, and they got very little in terms of immediate support upon coming back, um, other than just a train ticket home. Um, so it was a very difficult readjustment process. Um, and more broadly, if you look at the entire um, period of the uh, interwar years, so about two decades, um, the title of my first chapter is uh, Reform and Reaction. Um, and that's because the main narrative of the interwar period, I think, for U.S. veterans, um, when it comes to their relationship with the state, um, was essentially the failure of uh, progressives like Woodrow Wilson and the people behind him um, to implement kind of a lasting reform of veterans programs. Um, and in reaction to that, veterans pushing back against that reform and managing to impose their own model. Um, so to simplify what this um, debate was about between progressives and veterans, um, essentially what progressives wanted was um, cut down public spending, 
on veterans, which was quite high um, during this period, by trying to treat them on the same level as other citizens, um, instead of offering them separate uh, and more generous treatment programs like veterans hospitals or veterans pensions, for instance, veteran programs that were not actually open to the rest of the population. Um, and so even though most progressives, um, and here I mean not just Wilson, but also FDR and beyond, uh, most progressives actually recognized that um, those veterans who had incurred a dissident service deserve to be, um, to get support from the state. At the same time, they also argue that um, the veterans who had left service without a disability should be actually be treated on the same level as the rest of the population. Um, so they thought that welfare benefits should go to groups in need of help instead of only to a specific black veterans. Now, of course, as you can imagine, uh, veterans disagreed with that argument. Um, they defended the idea that um, I and others have called martial citizenship, uh, which essentially is the idea that, um, the wartime service of veterans represented a sacred contract and debt that the U.S. government could never repay in its entirety, uh, and that whatever benefits um, veterans receive return after the war should not be counted as welfare but rather as part of the cost of war. Uh, and therefore, veterans argued that their benefits, their programs, belong to a separate uh, and different class of benefits, um, that they were not, so, quote-unquote, welfare, um, but actually part of the cost of war. Um, now, of course, this logic uh, was not accepted by everyone, uh, even within the veteran community, I should point out. Um, but this was the argument put forward by veterans throughout the time period looking at in this book, um, and it's the one that essentially, after a few years, won out against the progressive vision and allowed veterans to actively expand um, their own separate wealth system. And you know, when looking at World War II and just the start of it, uh, what was the how did the veterans movement immediately respond to the change? Was there was there a particular particularly interesting or unexpected reaction? Yeah, so let me just say a few things maybe about the veterans movement in general, like who are actually the biggest players in that. Um, the veterans movement was a very large, and it still is a very large movement in terms of the number of organizations that uh, were actually involved in it. Uh, by some accounts, uh, in the 1940s, there were um, over 200 different groups that uh, belonged to this movement. Um, but the ones that I focus on in the book, um, and were actually the, the three largest ones, um, namely the American Legion, uh, the Veteran of Foreign Wars, uh, and the Disabled American Veterans. Um, and I focus on these um, not only because they were the largest ones. Um, for instance, during the interwar period, the, the American Legion had between 600,000 and 1 million people, uh, 1 million members, um, but also because those were groups that kept the most extensive archives uh, and that, that were the most influential in terms of their in national politics. So to get to your question of how did the veterans movement change after or during World War II, um, well, essentially what um, those different organizations, uh, the question that they faced at the beginning of World War II was a very similar question uh, for every uh, pre um, previous conflict, which was how were they going to integrate um, the new generation of veterans who were going to emerge at the end of the conflict? And in a way, this was an easy question for um, the veterans of foreign wars and the disabled American veterans, because those were not actually um, war specific in terms of eligibility. Um, the VFW was open to every um, veteran who had served abroad, uh, regardless of the war in which they had served, and indeed all veterans were disabled, uh, again, without regard to uh, the war in which they had served. The critical difference was that the American Legion had been created back in 1919 um, precisely for World War I veterans. So this was a war-specific group. Um, and so for that group in particular, 
World War II posed more of a um, problem because they had to decide whether they were actually going to change the fundamental nature of their own group to open their rank and welcome a new generation. And this was even more of a problem for them because of the much larger size um, of this new generation. Um, so there were approximately uh, over 16 million Americans who served during World War II, compared with slightly less than 5 million for World War I. So if you put yourself in the shoes of engineers um, at the time, you knew that if they opened up to this new generation, they ran the risk of very quickly neutral of their organization to this new generation. Um, and so essentially what the, what the chapter about World War II kind of looks at is the debate in the American Legion between opposed um, welcoming a new, new generation and those who actually advocate for it. Um, now, in the end, uh, the group that was advocating uh, opening up is the one that won out. Um, and that's largely because I think the leadership of the American Legion uh, was concerned with losing their position as the most powerful group within the veterans movement. Um, they were concerned that other groups, especially the VFW, uh, which did not have the limitation on eligibility that the Legion had, um, were going to essentially um, pass them and uh, become the first and most influential veterans movement. Um, so in other words, um, the American Legion leadership knew that that um, to put it briefly, things had to change um, if things were to remain the same. Um, and that's essentially what they did. Um, so ultimately, they opened their ranks to World War II veterans, uh, and they would do the same for every um, following uh, war after that. Um, and they would remain the largest and most influential veterans group in the U.S. Um, for the decades to come. Uh, you know, so something that I'm just re reminded of is this this book that came out a couple of years ago called Rough Draft of History that does this kind of comprehensive study of newspaper article uh, headlines uh, at the looking at the major american newspapers and the thing that was so striking is how often veterans organizations were making the front page headlines like it was the mo it was con consistent every every <laughs> seemingly every every other day veterans organizations were were veterans protests or all sorts of things like that uh were making were making headlines and sort of feeding into that you know talking about how they were preparing for for World War II veterans, you know, can you describe what the experience of return was like for World War II veterans compared to the World War I veterans? Yeah, so in many ways, um, the experience of return um, uh, for World War II veterans was very similar to that of World War I veterans, um, but it was different in some crucial respects. Um, it was similar in the sense that um, they also experienced a very chaotic uh, return home. Um, the demobilization process was very haphazard. Uh, for many veterans, it um, occurred very slowly, so slowly, in fact, that there were mutinies um, in Soviet spaces abroad. Um, there was also economic turmoil at home uh, with the housing shortage. Um, and also, like you said, many people were concerned that veterans um, would be agents of disruptions, that coming home, they would bring with them various kinds of social or physical or mental um, problems that would actually disrupt um, the U.S. political order. Um, this was true not just for white veterans, uh, but even more so for black veterans, of course, who often faced uh, lynching when they returned south. Um, and as for women veterans, of course, uh, in both cases, World War I and World War II, uh, they were simply ignored by the state and told to return to their home as um, child weaver. Now, the key difference between World War I and World War II is that um, after World War II, the state was actually better prepared um, for the problem of how to deal with veterans. Um, Essentially, what, the, what happened within um, the structure of the uh, American government during World War II is that policymakers were aware that to avoid another um, chaotic uh, demobilization process, and especially a long and troublesome 
uh, problem of um, dealing with veterans' benefits. We haven't talked about it, but the 1932 bonus march was a key problem that um, they absolutely wanted to avoid a repeat of. So to avoid having the same thing happen all over again after World War II, uh, planning for the post-war began very early. Uh, in fact, almost as soon as the U.S. entered uh, into World War II, uh, it began preparing post-war. Uh, this led to the passage of a number of key pieces of legislation, uh, of course, the most important one being uh, the Servicemen Readjustment Act uh, of 1944, which is better known as the GI Bill, uh, which you mentioned in your introduction, um, and which, of course, gave um, access um, to veterans, gave World War II veterans access to a host of new benefits that World War I veterans never had access to. Um, unemployment compensation, uh, tuition payments if they uh, wanted to return to school or uh, to take on the job training, state guarantee or home, farm or, or business, um, as well as help um, finding jobs. Now, at the time, this was seen as a very short-term solution to avoid the same kind of chaotic process that happened after World War One. Uh, and essentially, the way that this law was passed was by saying to uh, U.S. policymakers who were concerned that an expensive project that this would be limited only to a few veterans who use it very briefly and then return home and then no longer need it. Um, now, of course, the reality was very different. Um, this was the first time in U.S. history that uh, the federal government implemented readjustment benefits uh, for the entire veteran population, regardless of disability. Um, and this would prove one of the most popular uh, veterans program after the... You, you mentioned it a little bit in that, in that last answer. Um, but, and you focus on it quite a bit in the book, but just the, the housing crisis that followed. So what if you talk about uh, what, the, what the housing crisis looked like uh, for the returning soldiers and what actions were taken to improve the housing problems? Yeah, so the history of the housing crisis, uh, which um, I, I delve into in one chapter, actually um, goes back much, much longer than, the, than World War II. It had origin in the Great Depression. Uh, which essentially uh, led to cuts in the entire housing industry. Uh, and then during World War II, there were also wartime exigencies, which uh, resulted in less uh, civilian housing being constructed, um, as well as massive uh, migration from rural areas to the cities where most of the defense work was taking place. Um, and also, of course, at the very end of the war, you had the beginning of the baby boom, uh, which meant that more um, couples needed of their own um, to, to move into. The result was a huge uh, shortage of housing in 1944, 1945. Um, essentially, to give you only one example, um, in 1946, the total number of homes that were estimated to be needed only for short-term uh, needs was approximately 2.7 million. Um, so this was a major um, problem, and I would say one of the most important problem that uh, the Truman administration faced um, after World War II. And the um, Truman administration never actually implemented a coherent housing policy, first because they were not actually really ready for it. Um, this was not really the problem that um, U.S. policymakers had been preparing for. Everyone thought that the economic depression after the war, uh, and no one really planned for that shortage. Uh, and so there was no solutions ready to be implemented. Uh, the other reason why they, uh, the uh, Truman administration couldn't really deal with it was because they lacked a tool to do so. Um, after Republicans won um, in 1946, the midterm elections, um, they forced Truman to take away price controls, uh, which essentially meant that he couldn't actually 
implement the limits on housing prices that he wanted to to implement. And so essentially what um, took place within the veterans movement uh, in the next few years, essentially from approximately 1945 to 1948, 1949, a fight over which um, solution to support as a way to solve the shortage. Uh, what you had was a division between the two generations, between World War One and two generations within the veterans movement. Um, of course, I'm generalizing, but um, as a whole, most of the veterans tend to be more conservative, economically speaking. Uh, they tend to prefer um, sort of a version of trickle-down economics. The idea that you just allow um, the housing industry to build more housing, gradually speaking, they will end up uh, build the kind of housing that will appeal to middle-class or working-class um, people, and therefore the problem will solve, will solve itself. They also thought that um, having the government indirectly in the housing industry would kind of... Um, would be something akin to what Soviet Russia was doing. Um, and so in the context of the emerging Cold War, they were strongly against it. But then on the other hand, you had World War II veterans who, uh, most of them were much more moderate uh, in terms of thinking about the role of the government in the U.S. economy. They were not reflexively opposed to public um, housing solutions. And in fact, they many of them felt that this was the only way to actually solve that problem. Um, so you had this generational fight between World War I and World War II veterans, especially within the Legion, but not only. Um, and what happened after a few years was that uh, essentially World War II veterans won out, not just because they were um, simply uh, a larger group uh, and because the World War I generation was dying out, um, but also because, uh, again, World War I veterans realized that if they lost um, the World War II generation, if refused to do what that generation wanted, uh, they would simply go somewhere else and then make another group uh, more powerful, which they absolutely wanted to avoid. Um, so what you had was after two years, uh, in 1945, the American Legion was uh, strongly against public housing. And then by 1948, uh, it actually had switched its position to supporting um, public housing, which was quite a dramatic uh, turnaround for such a, a conservative group. Uh, and that sort of led to the passage of the 1949 Housing Act, uh, which expanded public housing policy in the U.S., um, and help sort of uh, put an end to the housing crisis, uh, essentially by the... Uh, another thing that you discuss in the book is the Hoover Commission, the, the return of Hubert Hoover into the, the, the public spotlight, a man who, uh, you know, appears again and again in American politics. Yes. Um, it's, it's, it's pretty remarkable. I, I did, I, when I first learned about him, I just knew, knew him as a, uh, as a, as a one-term president, um, or yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I was wondering if you talk about the Hoover Commission and, um, Hoover's recommendations, uh, how his recommendations were received by the veteran community. Yeah, so if if the chapter about the housing uh, shortage um, was an example of vision within the veterans movement, um, the chapter about the Hoover Commission is an example of uh, how they could be much more powerful when they were united. Um, to give you uh, just a summary of what happened, the Hoover Commission was a commission that was created back in 1947. Initially, the idea behind it was to provide Republicans with a blueprint to roll back the old state, uh, which had been created over the last um, 13 years or so. Um, and so that's why they uh, chose Hoover as a, as, a, as a chair of that commission, because, of course, he was one of the leaders of the conservative wing of the GOP. But then um, after Truman uh, was uh, re-elected in 48 against all uh, odds, the, tr the commission actually became an effort more to rationalize uh, the New Deal state and to make it more efficient. Um, and it wanted to do so essentially by uh, suggesting reforms that would um, centralize the lines of command between the president and uh, sort of ground level officials 
um, but also eliminate um, overlaps between agencies in terms of mission. Um, so find ways to make the uh, executive branch more efficient and to cut spending, essentially. Uh, now, of course, those principles which I just um, outlined um, stood in direct contradiction to uh, the existence of veterans' benefits, because by definition, um, many of those programs were the same as those provided by other agencies for the civilian population, only that veterans' benefits targeted a specific category um, of the U.S. public, veterans. Um, our commission actually called for major cuts in the structure of the Veterans Administration, the federal agency which was in charge of uh, veterans' benefits, um, for instance, by um, suggested that it, suggesting that it merge its hospitals with those of the public health service. Um, this, was, this was seen as a direct uh, threat to the separate status, status of martial citizenship. Um, as you can imagine, healthcare, um, even to this day, is seen as a major, one of the major types of um, public benefit that U.S. citizens can have access to. So it was the same in the 1940s. Um, and so those uh, propositions of reform uh, essentially led to a major grassroots counter reaction of the veterans movement against the Commission, uh, which eventually, after a few years, led to the failure of most of Hoover's recommendations. Uh, by the early 1950s, had had success in other areas of the government in suggesting reform and implementing it. Um, when it comes to veterans affairs, most of the reforms um, suggested by the group actually failed. Uh, and so I see that as an example of how powerful veterans could be when they united across generations as opposed to divided. Just after uh, World War II, of course, uh, the Cold War begins to, to heat up, uh, so to speak. And I was wondering if you could just talk about, uh, broadly speaking, how veterans and vet veteran affairs were shaped by uh, the nascent and growing anti-communist movement, uh, specifically spearheaded by Senator Joseph McCarthy. Yeah. So here, this is this was perhaps the the chapter and the chapter about um, the second Red Scare was perhaps the one where I was most reacting against um, scholarship on the topic in the sense that um, if you read. Um, books about the Second West Gear, you often find that uh, veterans are typically portrayed as the foot soldiers of the Second West Gear, as the um, as the most ardent supporters of the quote-unquote anti-red uh, crusade. Um, the Legion, the VFW, are pictured as um, some of the most powerful uh, defenders of McCarthy. Now, to an extent, that's true, of course. Um, in the book, I call the Legion the civic heart of the second Red Scare, by contrast with what uh, Ellen Tracker has called the bureaucratic heart of the second Red Scare, which was the FBI. Um, the Legion supported financially and politically almost all of the most famous anti-communist um, speech. Um, it also actively lobbied, lobbied for all the keys of anti-communist legislation. Um, and it was a relentless advocate for a more uh, confrontational foreign policy when it came to the um, communist bloc. So, of course, there is um, some truth to the fact that uh, the Legion and the VFW and the Veterans Movement in general were strong advocates of anti-communism. So what I discovered as I uh, looked into the archives of the Legion actually was that all of that activity, that anti-communist activity, um, carried out by a very limited number um, that in fact, even though it gave the impression to outsiders of a very intense uh, activity, it was actually a very top-down effort by a relatively small number of legionnaires in the national leadership on the rest of the organization, a position that in fact, most legionnaires care little about. 
Um, and there were many reasons why um, this sort of aggressive form of anti-communism was not something that uh, most legionnaires wanted to endorse. Uh, one reason was a concern over respectability. Um, there was a fear that if it began to advocate for uh, conspiracy theories, um, the mainstream status that it had gained uh, after World War II, also the fear that it would lose members. Uh, don't forget, the, uh, all of the veterans groups are voluntary organizations uh, whose income comes mostly from due, uh, and so this for them can essentially a uh, life-threatening um, problem. And also, this is something that I think we forget too, too often, simply because um, the major concern of the veterans has, has always been, uh, and was at the time, a focus on veterans' benefits. Um, veterans' leaders were afraid that if they began to spend too much of their time and resources fighting against coming, um, they would not have the uh, relationship with um, state actors that they needed um, to actually do what they were paid for, which was uh, defend and obtain, obtain new benefits. Um, and that's actually precisely what happened, which is to say that uh, in the 1950s, Legion and the FW were um, sort of taken over briefly by a um, small clique of um, far-right uh, veterans who advocate for a um, conspiracy theory about UNESCO, um, the idea that UNESCO is a, an organization that was a employee um, to infringe on U.S. Um, sovereignty. Uh, and when those veterans actually managed to have their group officially endorse that, um, they, those groups lost a lot of credit in the eyes of the press and the public opinion. Um, and this is the beginning of what I see as their um, partial eclipse um, from the center of gravity of national politics in the sense that not that it disappeared entirely, of course, from national politics, um, they remained very powerful uh, forces, especially when it came to veterans' benefits, uh, as well as on the local level. Um, but I would argue that after the mid 1950s, um, the main organizations of the veterans movement were no longer seen with the same degree of respectability and credit and that they had enjoyed uh, in the immediate period after World War II. Well, one of the under-discussed wars in America is the Korean War, uh, and it, it's interesting to you know looking at the uh, how veterans fared after World War One, and we've discussed how they fared after World War II. How did the veterans after the Korean War fare? Obviously, there had been so much. Uh, action that had taken place uh, in the interim periods. Yeah. So the the quick answer is is that they did not fare as well as their uh, as their counterparts for World War II. Uh, they got uh, less generous benefits as well as uh, less public credit. Um, this was partly, uh, I would say, because of the general perception of the war, uh, which was not even actually a war. Um, strictly a quote unquote police action. That's how Truman called it. Uh, there was no official declaration of war uh, by the U.S. Congress. Um, and so when you add that to the fact that um, essentially after the first uh, several months, it um, turned into a standoff uh, with no major evolution uh, in the conflict, the U.S. public generally lost interest um, and did not pay as much attention to it as it did or two. Um, so that's what was, that was one reason behind the, the, the fewer benefits that I received. The other one was actually a backlash against the, what was perceived as the excess of World War II benefits. Um, and especially the GI Bill. This is something that I think is particularly interesting because we often uh, remember the GI Bill as this sort of example of the best of what the U.S. government can do its population, um, sort of a very golden edge of it. Uh, when in fact, if you look back at the at the um, at the press immediately after World War II, um, it with examples of fraud perpetrated not just by people who were trying to cheat veterans out of their government money, but also by veterans themselves who are trying to take advantage of the generosity of that law. Um, 
And so by 1950, uh, the beginning of the Korean War, um, because of all that press about um, fraud and corruption and so on, the consensus was that um, the law actually needed to be tightened up. That if the same benefits be accorded to uh, the new generation, as well as the generations that would come after it, because in most, in the mind of most, the Korean War was just the beginning of the Cold War. And so they anticipated that war were to come. So those two um, things in mind, they actually, they had to make veterans benefits more sustainable in the long run, which meant, of course, cutting back spending. Uh, and so the result of that was the 19th uh, Veteran Readjustment Assistant Act, the second um, GI Bill, uh, which gave veterans of Korea uh, access to the same benefits as their World War II elders, but in a less generous version. Um, so for instance, their unemployment compensation checks were smaller. Um, they had less of a choice when it came to which course of study they could follow. Um, and the government stipend and their restitution was simply generous. Um, so you had in, in, in that sense, you had both uh, consolidation of veterans' benefits in the sense that the new kind of readjustment benefits that had been created uh, in 1944 were confirmed, but you also had a backlash in the sense that uh, they were now made as generous. Something that you discussed uh, briefly before it was this concept of martial citizenship, and, and it really, it seems to be this this constant theme that you're picking up again and again in the book. And I was wondering if you just talk about the history, just the, you know, in a sort of a general sense, the history and legacy of, of martial citizenship. Yeah, so the history of martial citizenship is, is uh, essentially the history of the U.S. welfare state. Um, it's a history that goes back to the 17th century, to colonial America, uh, with the first uh, pensions being granted to uh, veterans of the militia uh, in the Plymouth colony. Um, and essentially, it's a story of how those benefits were gradually expended after each war. Uh, you had bounty land grants after the revolution. You had old soldiers' homes after the Civil War hospitals after World War One, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so it's a history of a gradual but steady expansion. Um, and so in many ways, the period that I'm looking at here in the book um, is just one chapter in a much older and much longer story that began before and continues to this day. Um, but I will also argue that um, it wasn't just any chapter in the sense that um, it was also during this time period, so uh, between uh, World War I and 1960, uh, that martial citizenship became, became permanently embedded in public policy. Um, during that period, it had a shift from a war-specific time-limited model in the sense that every um, generation was granted benefits uh, to itself and those benefits were supposed to expire after the um, passing of the last veteran of that generation. You had to shift away from that model to a more universal, unlimited framework that was supposed to apply to all veterans in the future, regardless of which uh, had fought on. Uh, and the key step in that uh, direction was the creation of single agents uh, with responsibility for all uh, veterans' benefits, regardless of the war um, in which the veterans had fought, um, VA, the Veterans Administration, in 1930. Um, and so that's sort of the longer history uh, in terms of the legacy. Um, the legacy of, of that uh, concept is also sort of paradoxical in the sense that, um, as I said before, the book ends with a sort of partial eclipse of the veterans' movement, um, which I would argue is actually evidence not just of the failure of that movement, but of its success in the sense that um, veterans' groups declined in part because they no longer needed to fight so hard for martial citizenship to be accepted. Uh, since it became sort of a fact of life for most Americans, I mean, you said yourself earlier that this was something you had never thought about, um, this also became less uh, something to be mobilized, uh, that, that we mobilized for, to defend. 
Um, and also it's because um, the mid-century is sort of unique in the sense of how central veterans' benefits were to the U.S. welfare state more generally. Um, if you look at the share of federal spending on social welfare, welfare um, in 1948, 1950, it was about three-fifths of all spending. Um, if you look at it in 1990, it's about 120th. Um, so it's just become a much smaller uh, portion of the general welfare state because other kind of programs for the civilian population as a whole have grown to such an extent that it's longer such a big problem um, for the general public. Uh, veterans' benefits are less of a concern. Um, but like you said, it's still around us. Uh, in fact, I would argue that um, it's so deeply embedded in your society that people tend to take them for granted, to think that they're part of a long-standing cultural tradition of respect for you as veterans, when in fact, from my perspective, they are the product of a long uh, political fight that was carried out by veterans themselves as a social. Yeah, and I think that like, you know, that, that those last few sentences that you said are so so well put and really my biggest takeaway uh, from, from the research that you sort of have unveiled is that it's, you know, the sense that, Amer you know, that respecting veterans and uh, caring about veterans and thanking them for their service is just not as American as apple pie as it might seem. It's actually something that is uh, only only came to fruition in like the last couple generations. Yeah, it's quite recent actually, and I would say perhaps if 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 you know if uh, if, if you have to think about perhaps what's coming next, um, one of the lessons I think that you can take away from the, um, especially if you if you think about the current context of, of American politics and the U.S. withdrawal from the um, and perhaps what's going to come next for the post 9/11 generation. Um, I would argue that if you look back at the history of veterans, um, of veterans' benefits, um, it's it's likely that um, in the next few years, perhaps in the next decade or so, we to face a backlash against veteran spending. Um, if you look back at, at U.S. history after every war, um, it didn't take very long for the general mood of the population to turn quickly against veterans, to sort of go from um, patriotic support. Um, for veterans in wartime, concern for fiscal responsibility and um, sort of budget cuts, essentially. Um, so I think that as the U.S. is withdrawing from military engagement at least, and as VA spending keeps in, um, this is something that doesn't really get much uh, attention in the in the U.S. media, but um, VA spending actually increased fivefold um, from 2000 to 2021. Um, so from about. 45 billion to uh, over 245 billion dollars. Um, I think it's only a matter of time before we sort of t uh, begin to see the same kind of pushback against veteran spending that um, I describe in the book. Yeah, my, my very last question, and you know, this is one that's just more so out of you know interest about the long-standing. There, there's been, there's a long tradition of French scholars studying America, and I was wondering if you know for you yourself as as a French scholar studying America. You know, if there's anything that you think um, that, you know, there's something about America that maybe other an American scholar isn't capable of seeing that a French scholar like Tocqueville or like yourself uh, or Justin Weiss or, or, you know, or others are. Yeah, I, it, yeah, I hadn't thought of it, but I think I, it's not so much being French as being as being foreigner that I think helps me see some of the things that perhaps um, Americans don't see. Um, so for instance, I, I was just stunned to, I spent more than three months uh, in the archives of the M Legion uh, in Indianapolis. And, and you know, again, this, th this was a group that played a major role in the growth of the US welfare state in national politics, which had more than 3 million people 
uh, in the middle of the 20th century. And for three months, I was the only researcher there. Um, and so I too, it was just really surprising to see um, such a large group with such an outsized influence in US politics um, seem to attract so little attention. Um, and even to this day, I think, you know, the veterans history field that is, I think, growing and attracting more and more practitioners. Um, but I still don't think it really gets the uh, attention that it deserves, especially in the United States. Uh, in part, I think, again, because of the success uh, that veterans groups have had in sort of um, making everyone think that their benefits are just a fact of life uh, as opposed to something they themselves fought for. Um, so I think be being French, being a foreigner sort of helped me see that as strange, as weird, as worth investigating, um, as opposed to taking it for granted. Um, so in that sense, I think that was a, um, advantage that I had. Yeah, that's it. No, that's it. That's fascinating. Well, Olivia, thank you so much for being guest on the new books network. The book is a nation of veterans or citizenship in a welfare state in modern America. It's great speaking with you. Thank you, Kenneth. Thank you.